our slogan then was social media for social change. Yes. We, we were honestly the truest, believed yes, that truest social believers. media could actually change the world for the better. Of course, like a few years later, we became the target. Rappler won decade and won Nobel Peace Prize later, today on In Asia, from the Asia Foundation. I'm John Rieger. And I'm Tracy Young. Last week, the Asia Foundation presented our Changling Tian Distinguished Leadership Award to the investigative news site, Rappler, and its founding team, Maria Ressa, Glenda Gloria, Chai Ofolenia, and Beth Frondoso, for their courageous independent journalism in the Philippines. Once a scrappy startup, Rappler at 10 has become a political lightning rod with an average of 40 million page views a month and a history of discomfiting the powerful. We're joined today by two of Rappler's founders, executive editor Glenda Gloria and CEO and President Maria Ressa, who last year received the Nobel Peace Prize for Rappler's work to safeguard freedom of expression. Glenda and Maria, welcome to In Asia. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. You both had distinguished careers as reporters and broadcasters when you started Rappler. Glenda, you had held prestigious positions as the head of Newsbreak and managing editor of the ABS-CBN News Channel, which is a major Philippine news operation. What made you launch a startup that was all online and sent young reporters into the field with nothing but their smartphones? Well, for one, you have to be foolish. <laughs> but also when Maria and I were working with the ABS-CBN News Network, which was the largest broadcasting network in the Philippines, we saw the tide changing. Social media was beginning to shape society, shape communities, and shape journalism. And we thought we should be there. Was there a moment when you two just looked at each other and like, yes, this is possible, or yes, we have to do this now? It was her idea. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't it it your idea? No, it was your idea. I mean, later. (laughs) So, I mean, we work really well together, you know, uh, in in ABS-CBN, which is the largest broadcaster in the Mm -hmm. Philippines. It was where we experimented with different ideas, different scopes. Glenda took that forward. And then... When we moved to Rappler, I mean, imagine we were managing a thousand journalists. And then all of a sudden we went to a startup with 12 people, including us. Right. <laughs> and you had to unlearn a lot of things. For one, there were no, well, we would call it as a joke, minions. She had a, a big a giant network and you have a lot of staff, but you had to unlearn that because technology also afforded us a lot of leeway in terms of uh, free distribution, in terms of the tools. And I remember Natasha, uh, our young reporter who, who was an Asia Foundation fellow, uh, was a young a college graduate and who was given uh, just one tool in her news gathering which is the smartphone. Mm-hmm. And everyone else who would see her in coverage would laugh at her because she was up against uh, the big networks with their big cameras, etc. And she would insert her way through coverage just holding this cell phone. But of course, that cell phone reported what is, was happening straight to our site, mm-hmm. which really cut all the layers of broadcasting and really just turned Philippine media upside down and said, what is Rappler doing? That must have been incredibly exciting to see yourself getting that kind of traction. We knew we were on the right track, but that advantage we lost in about a year. A year and oh, a half. Because everyone adopted. Everyone, right. So, like, instead of carrying the big cameras, they realized, because every time they did that, they had to shoot 
take their video home, edit it. Meantime, we've already gone live, right? This is 2012. So you're talking about the time before Facebook and YouTube made it easy for groups to go live. At that point, we were going live with our cell phones with an IP satellite van. Wow. It was great fun. I mean, (laughs) and and social media was kind. I mean, it was a, a... our slogan then was social media for social change. Yes. We, we were honestly the believed yes, that social media could actually change the world for the better. But Maria, well, <laughs> of course, like a few years later, we became the targets, right? That's when information operations began. And that's when the drive for money, for profit of the social media platforms turned that business model against its users, against democracy. Yes, it turns out the social media and the surveillance advertising model together are perfect tools for incitement. And dictators. <laughs> or dictators to be, right? This is this is a this now has accelerated the path. Digital populists became authoritarians, democratically elected. When you have an incentive structure that like what social media has created, you don't have facts, right? Because lies spread faster than these really boring facts, at least six times faster by an MIT report that was released in 2018. You got a number, six (laughs) times faster. At least, right? And if it's laced with anger and hate, then the user stays on longer, Mm -hmm. right? You studied terrorist networks when you were at CNN. Has that kind of network thinking helped you understand better the kind of online network problems that you're talking about now? Well, I, again, social media for social good, right? We use these ideas of network analysis, and we thought that this is what would help build institutions bottom up. That was the goal. And for many years, it did work up until 2016. So Rappler was born in 2012. Until 2016, you could use social networks for good, right? You can bypass corruption top down, that's coming top down, and actually have participatory democracy. And people felt empowered. These were the glory days, and they didn't last very long, right? After 2011, the Arab Spring, by 2015, it was becoming the Arab Winter. So when once autocratic governments realized this could be used against them, they then mobilized their own resources, vast resources, of the state. That's when it began to swing. That's when you began to see authoritarian rulers using this to control population person to person. The New York Times reported on October 4th that popular Philippine news radio host Percival Mabasa, a government critic, had been fatally shot in his car by masked assailants. He was assassinated. He was the second journalist murdered since the new presidential administration in June. What's it like for journalists in the Philippines today? Is it hard to do your job? Well, actually, Maria and I uh, were at the wake of Percy. And Maria, can you? It is extremely difficult to continue doing what we're doing. And look, I've never thought that I could go to jail for being a journalist, but certainly that's looking like it could. It's a possibility I could go to jail for the rest of my life just because we refuse to stop being journalists. But a lot of the support that we got really came from from not just fellow journalists, but a lot of uh, civil society groups that have come around and and really um, recognized the value of independent media. Uh, Without them, I guess, um, the killings 
would have probably been worse. And especially in the provinces where um, local reporters are more vulnerable to security threats and security attacks. So, But on the other hand, um, is that something that will stop us? Um, I guess it's fair to say that some journalists were really discouraged by the killings. And of course, you have to look at your priorities in terms of the family. But there's also a core of journalists in the Philippines that have continued because the history of Philippine journalism is the history really of activism. And if there's really a debate in the Western world that, oh, is this journalism? Should journalism be activism? The only kind of journalism that mattered in the global South is journalism that speaks truth to power, that exposes wrongdoing, and therefore is an activist sort of journalism. When, when you say you play neutral, we are for human rights. And therefore, we are not neutral as far as human rights violations are concerned. We are for the protection of the environment. And therefore, we are not neutral as far as violators of the environment are concerned. Or rule of law. You know, when rule of law deteriorates, when the rule of law is bent to the point that it's broken, we point it out. And that's not easy for governments to take, right? Um, But the other part also, and again, to bring it back to the social media platforms, when facts become debatable, journalism is activism. You don't have facts, you don't have truth, you don't have trust. Journalists are attacked precisely to tear down trust. We're first on the line. When you're talking, Maria, about, you know, the prospect of your future, I was trying to put myself in your shoes. And, you know, in 2016, Rappler was uh, was charged by the Philippine government for violating the country's foreign media ownership law. So for Rappler and for both of you, um, what, what comes next? What are you going to do? I mean, you know, this is political harassment. It's intimidation that hasn't stopped us. You either bow down to it or you don't, right? This is the same for almost every news group around the world working in a democracy. The exponential attacks came bottom up on social media. And then about a year later, it came top down. It's journalist equals criminal, right? To tear down trust. President Duterte himself in his State of the Nation address Mm -hmm. said that we were foreign owned, which we're not. So almost immediately I tweeted, we were doing live coverage and I like, we looked at each other and then I just tweeted, Mr. President, you're wrong, right? You should. So a week after that, we got our first subpoena. In 2018, we had 2017 to 2018, we had 14 investigations. You've had prosecution after prosecution. Some observers say that you personally, Maria, could be facing a century in, in prison. I know, and I have to laugh, right? And yet Rappler goes on. Yeah. You continue to, you, and you've won the Nobel Peace Prize for your, quote, efforts to safeguard freedom of expression. No, you have to understand, I don't think I won the Nobel Peace Prize. I think Rappler did, right? Because this, I think this is the strength of Rappler. It isn't one founder, there are four of us, and we splinter in four different directions. We have the same values, we have the same goals, and we... You hear about me because they're quieter. <laughs> I talk a lot more. Because <laughs> the Philippines is a country that is used to tyrants. I mean, we're no strangers <laughs> to dictators, etc. But I think one lesson we learned from the six years of the Dirties, you yield an inch to a tyrant and he will want more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you give in to a bully, what does a bully do? 
It's very simple. And also it goes to the standards and ethics of what journalism is. And I think this is part of the fun of Rappler. I know that sounds crazy, but the four of us believe in the same things. And that's where we but also get very heard. different people. Very different. <laughs> when, you, when you talk about the four of you, the four founders, is one of you the mean one? Oh, I, am, I think I am. She's the bad cop. Oh. I'm the good cop. She's the good cop. She just stepped cop. right up and, yes. and, and, owned, and owned it. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. You need a bad cop, right? We do well together. <laughs> you need one. You <laughs> <laughs> did step right up. <laughs> so Chang Ling Tian, the former chancellor of the University of California, Berkeley, once said, it's not a matter of whether we can survive. It's a matter of being excellent or mediocre. So how do you maintain your excellence um, and leadership in difficult times? And where do you find that energy uh, when you're tired or discouraged or angry? Gosh, um, precisely because the spotlight is in Rappler and the pressures are there. In some weird way, the, the more pressure there is, the more resolve we have to be better. The diamond and to do emerges. Now, how do we deal with, with uh, you know, there were nights when we would lose sleep. But I think you just really have to face it and know that at the end of it, tyranny will be defeated. The, the good side is when you come under attack, you see things others don't. And that starts with the online attacks and the data that you get because no one but the person attacked sees it. If you analyze it, you're ahead of the curve. It's also an extremely exciting time because technology has shifted everything, largely for the bad, these American tech companies who are also our partners. Yes, I know that. You know, you don't have a choice if, because that is distribution. But at the same time, it's a time of creation. I mean, before people knew Rappler as, um, as a press freedom fighter, we were an innovative news organization that actually came up with um, ideas that got investors, right? Uh, I mean, this is a startup that did very well. And then when we came under attack, here's the other thing that in 2018, when the government first tried to shut us down, we lost in four months, 49% of our advertising revenue. If we hadn't pivoted immediately and come up with another sustainable business model driven by the very investigative journalism that we were doing against disinformation and the networks that spread it, we wouldn't have survived 2018. But the best part is that very same business model grew 2,000% in about a year, and that allowed us, when the pandemic lockdown came down, we were hiring people while other news groups were laying off people, right? So that's the best part there is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, I heard that Nietzsche coming. was right. <laughs> you, you're referring here, I guess, to your network analysis service for people or companies under online attack. What, what is that business model? Um, it's So think about the internet and uh, social media as a landscape that has no maps, Right? If you are a person or a company and you want to understand the landscape, you want to understand how information flows in this ecosystem, you need a map. So what we do is we look at network analysis. We use natural language processing to look at both messaging and, and the networks that spread these messages. It's kind of like I'd love to be the McKinsey 
of digital. Uh, except with a white hat. You know, that's what I think differentiates us. We refuse to do the things that are unethical because we have a standards and ethics manual. I mean, this is where people who are building the tech need to be held accountable. Sorry, I go back to that because that is the core of the problem. You now have a group of our youngest demographic who are coming of age in terms of going to the workforce and voting and uh, and who've all grown up just completely embedded online and in social media. Um, are do you, is that a positive or how do you view that in your future? Well, it is both. I mean, obviously, this generation is in a way, highly skilled multimedia-wise. We have reporters who are fresh graduates from college and and they really are very familiar with technology and all that. But at the same time, we have to be there to be the guiding hand. For me, I worry about this generation that has come of age on social media because the incentive structure of social media, what it rewards, Mm -hmm. it's a performative, curated world where the end goal is to keep them scrolling where their attention is, is the prize. Well, what happens? What do they get for staying online that long? What do they learn? And if you're in a performative world where popularity can so quickly turn into mob rule. Mm -hmm. What happens to your core values and your core self? In the old world, you know, your child would try their identities on, try different parts, layers, and they would be doing this with their family who loves them and their friends, who may be cruel at times, but not a mob. Now they do this online, on social media, with people who do not care about them. Mm -hmm. And that is the impact, right? You have three layers of impact. The personal, because it's micro-targeted. Sociological, how groups behave. And then finally, this one, which which we're already seeing the impact, emergent human behavior, right? When anger and hate is what gets rewarded, what happens to trust or, or thinking good things about other people? This is the world we're building, and it's not a good one. So, uh, so Maria and Glenda, Rappler first made its mark in a decade when, when legacy media was struggling to adapt to the Internet age. What does Rappler have to do to succeed in the decade to come? Oh, we continue to unlearn what we have learned, many of the things that we have learned in the last 10 years, because the world is fast-changing, it's fast-moving. And second is we continue to look beyond journalism and beyond the media industry. Because for us to survive the coming world or the end of the world, uh, we have to really collaborate with the non-media sectors of society, which is what? Which is your entrepreneurs, your your lawyers, your NGOs, your youth groups, etc. Without that kind of collaboration... It's going to be a very tough battle. You are thinking very penetratingly about what the business model can be for, for journalism. You've really cast a very wide net for ideas. We have no choice. I think, you know, Glenn, Glenda's describing a whole-of-society approach. Look, in the age of exponential propaganda, where social media, the main distribution platforms for news, is weaponized and actually serves lies... What do you need to do? Civil society, has it actually shifted strategies and tactics in this day and age? That's part of what we need to do. We need to work together to, 
to protect the facts. We have three pillars in Rappler, technology, journalism, and community. We build communities of action. The food we feed our communities is journalism. The journalists speak truth to power. That's important. We're not influencers. <laughs> uh, you know, speaking truth to power is difficult. Um, and you're trained for it. Uh, and then I guess the other part is we need to build tech. Tech that actually has a vision of the internet for the 21st century that is democratic. This battle for democracy is not just a journalist's battle. In the Nobel lecture, I talked about how it is a person-to-person defense of our democracy, and that is actually every citizen's battle in a democracy. Rappler's Maria Ressa and Glenda Gloria, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. That's our show for this week. We're grateful to our guests for sharing their time with us and to all of you for tuning in. And if you join us next time, you will hear how Bangladesh and One Man's Vision gave birth to one of the world's most effective international development NGOs, BRAC. That's an acronym. And we'll tell you what it means on the next In Asia podcast. Until then, I'm John Rieger. And I'm Tracy Young. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.